John chapter 1, we'll start in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we are very aware of what we're doing as we gather here together as your people. Lord, we are coming together in the name of your Holy Son, your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us grace so that we don't gather here in vain. Lord, so that we don't receive the grace of our God that's been revealed through Jesus Christ, that we don't receive that grace in vain. Lord, we don't want to fail as a body of believers to do what you've called us to do, which is to encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, Lord, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, we want to encourage each other and stir one another up to love and good deeds as a result of gathering together. So would you please give us grace to do that this morning? Father, as you've done countless numbers of times throughout the history of the church, would you let your spirit come in power and anoint the reading and the preaching of your word, anoint the worship of your holy name here in this place this morning, Lord, so that your name would be hallowed among us, that Christ would be lifted high, and that our hearts would be sanctified by the holiness of his name. Lord, we're called to sanctify the Lord, sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in our hearts. So often we find ourselves falling short of that lofty goal, Lord, that high command. So would you please do the work that only you can do in us this morning? Holy Spirit, we trust in you to blow when and where and how you will choose to blow. And we bow to your sovereign will, Lord. We joyfully bow before you, trusting that you are the good and loving God who joyfully deals compassionately with sinners like us. Father, show us your glory in your Son this morning in a way we haven't seen. Or maybe clarify that vision of glory in your Son that we have seen. And bring us from one degree of glory to another this morning. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, I hope it's a joy for you to get to gather here and get back to walking through John at this tremendous pace that we're going. Um, today is, I believe, message 11 in John, and we're in verse 14 of chapter 1. Some of you have spoken despairingly about that to me. And uh, it's like, man, we're going to be in John for quite a while if you don't speed this up. Um, let me reassure you that the pace at which we're walking through this opening section, I don't foresee that being the same pace that we will use as we move into the narrative portions of the gospel. Uh, we will be going through this more quickly. But here at the beginning, it's important to understand that what we're looking at is laying for us a strong and a firm foundation for walking through the rest of the gospel. It's, it's setting, as I've said before, it's setting in our minds, putting in our minds the different categories 
that the Gospel of John is going to present to us concerning the nature and the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need these categories in our minds fixed firmly so that as we move through the rest of the Gospel and we pick up these hints, these hints here and there of the eternality of Jesus, we, we pick up this, these glorious statements, even passing statements about the glory of the Son of God becoming a man and dwelling among us and we beholding His glory. Even as we, as we pick up on those passing references, you have slots in your mind that you can stick that into and say, oh yeah, I remember when we talked about that very theme in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So what we're doing right now is we're trying to lay out these categories clearly enough. I hope they're clear. We're trying to lay out these categories clearly enough that they'll stick with us through the rest of our time in John. And so, uh, with that said, we're going to enter back into John chapter 1, verse 14 this morning. This will be the second part of looking at this verse. And uh, uh, next week... We will return to this section to look at it some more. Today what I want to focus on is that phrase, the word dwelt among us, or at least he dwelt among us. Last week we began looking at the mystery presented to us in John 1.14, that the eternal word became flesh. And in so doing, when the word became flesh, we looked at the fact that God himself became flesh. And this is the great mystery that the church historically has referred to as the hypostatic union. Anybody heard of that before? A few of you say yes, most of you say no. The hypostatic union. That's just a fancy way of saying that in the one person of the Son of God, there was joined together two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. I like the way that the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith describes the hypostatic union. In chapter 8, verse paragraph, or chapter 8, paragraph 3, it says, In Christ, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Now, you've got to pay attention to that language. In Christ, two whole, that means complete, right? Perfect, not diminished in any way. Distinct, not intermixed. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, God the Son. It says that this happened without conversion, without composition, and without confusion. Which person is very God and very man, the only mediator between God and man? The glory and the mystery of the hypostatic union is simply stating the reality that in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God, we have the whole nature of man joined together to the whole nature of God. This is, in fact, the ground of our eternal salvation. This great mystery of how God was going to save sinners out of our darkness and bring us into the glory of his light, bring us out of what we deserve, which is his judgment and wrath for our sin, and bring us into what we don't deserve, the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God, the fellowship with our God for all eternity. The only thing that gives us any hope that that promise or that guarantee will be applied to us is the fact that God the Son became a man. So that in his becoming a man, he would bring all that belongs to him as the eternal son of God and dump it out upon us who belong to the human race. You see that? This is how it is that those who believe in Jesus Christ can be given the right to be called children of God. 1 John 1.12 Only because the everlasting son of God, God the son, chose to pour out all of his blessings upon us by becoming a man and joining himself to us in his manhood. By joining his infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy, glorious nature to our own, God, by his almighty power, is able now to lift us from the miry pit of sin and death and darkness 
And through the incarnation, the perfect life, the atoning death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of his son as the God-man, through his union with us, God is now lifting his people up out of death in order to bring us home to his glory. Hebrews 2.10. This is the glory of the gospel, that the son who was rich entered into the depths of our poverty so that by emptying himself for our sake, we would become spiritually rich in him. Now that is the glory of God revealed in our salvation. It's the glory of his grace revealed to us in the word becoming flesh. Now, really, the rest of this passage, John 1, verses 14 through 18, is simply communicating to us the results that flow from that great event. What were the results of the Word of God becoming flesh? Well, in essence, the results can fall under two headings. That when God became a man in our Lord Jesus Christ, number one, he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. And then secondly, we beheld his glory. Those are kind of the two headings that can encompass the rest of what we find in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Now today we're only looking at that phrase, he dwelt among us. And we'll return next week to the second heading, we beheld his glory. So according to John 1.14... When the word became flesh, not only did God become flesh, but also he dwelt among us. It may not appear this way on the surface, but the language being used here is quite unique. And it signals to us something that is very significant. I'm sure that you've heard that the word here translated dwelt basically means the word came and pitched his tent among us. Or he came and made his habitation among us. Or as the old writers like to put it, which I like the old writers better than the newer writers. They seem to grasp things a little more fully, in my opinion. But as the older writers like to put it, when the word of God became flesh, he tabernacled among us. This one word in John 1.14 has a rich theology behind it. The root of this word appears often as a noun in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And for the ear of any Greek-speaking Jew in John's day, whose everyday Bible was the Septuagint, you guys know that, if they spoke Greek, then they were most often reading the scriptures in Greek, which would have been the Septuagint at that time. For the ear of any Greek-speaking Jew in John's day, as soon as he or she read or heard this word used in reference to the incarnation, it would have immediately drawn a connection in their minds to God's dwelling among Israel in the tabernacle. That is because the word that's used here in reference to Jesus dwelling among us, he dwelt among us, that is the word skinao. Now, I normally don't bring out the actual Greek word or Hebrew word, but it's important for you to hear the similarity in these words that are used. The verb here is skinao, he dwelt among us. And the word that's used in the Septuagint to refer to the tabernacle is the word skinē. So you hear that, that is the noun form of the verb skinao. Skinē was referring to the tent or the place of meeting where God chose to dwell among the people of Israel. For example, you see in Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9, right after Israel agreed to the terms of God's covenant, right? You have God redeeming Israel out of Egypt. You have God bringing them to Mount Sinai. And then from Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23 to 24, you have God laying out his stipulations and his demands of that covenant. And in chapter 24, you have Israel accepting the demands of that covenant, saying, we will live with our God according to his will that's revealed to us in this covenant. What's fascinating to me is that the very first thing God calls his people to do after they agreed to the terms of his covenant was to build him a sanctuary. 
In chapter 25, verses 8 through 9, the Lord says to them, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That's glorious. You notice in verse 9, according that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle. That's skene. That's the word there. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. In other words, whenever God wanted his people to build a dwelling place for him, he revealed the pattern of what he wanted that dwelling place to look like. He told them exactly what they were supposed to do in order to make it a worthy place of habitat for him, if you will. A worthy place where he could come and dwell among his people as their God and they could be his people. And you pay attention, you notice here in verses 25, uh, verse 8, or chapter 25, verse 8, you notice the purpose of the tabernacle. It says here that they were to construct the tabernacle according to the pattern God showed them so that God would have a place to dwell among his covenant people. We see that same thing in Exodus 29, verses 44 through 46, where Yahweh says to his people, I will consecrate the tent of meeting. Everything, everywhere where there's a, uh, actually, I've got an extra underline there, so that's not going to work. Everywhere you see tent here, that's the word skene, okay? So the same word that was translated tabernacle in Exodus 25, 9 is here translated tent. Just keep that in mind. Yahweh says to his people, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. Now, I didn't have this down, but you need to also know. Throwing some words out at you. I'm sorry. I hope this isn't too much. I don't think it is. You guys are smart. The Hebrew word for tabernacle is um, mishkan. The Hebrew word for dwell is shakan. So you have mishkan and shakan. Very similar words. So when God was telling them to build a tabernacle, he was telling them to build a place where he could shakan with them. He could dwell among them. Similarity of language here. So they will consecrate for me the tent of meeting, or I will consecrate the tent of meeting, in verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now here, God seems to say that the very purpose for bringing Israel out of Egypt was so that he would have a people to dwell among, a people to live among, a people to walk with, to have fellowship and communion with. And that purpose was realized in what Moses calls here the tent of meeting, the designated place where God and man would meet. Now, just as a side note, this is one of the major themes running throughout Scripture. The reality that God intends to dwell with and to dwell among humanity. We see this from the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis 3.8, after Adam and Eve had sinned, what do we find Yahweh doing? We find him approaching them in the garden, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? Seemingly indicating to us that this was the pattern that the Lord employed with Adam and Eve. He would come regularly to fellowship with them in the garden that he had made, this sanctuary of his presence where God and man would dwell together. And despite the fact that we forfeited this great blessing with our creator, right? we chose to do our will and what was right in our own eyes over against what was right in God's eyes and his will, and we were driven out of the garden, Genesis 3:24. The Lord drove us out. Despite that fact, in one sense, the rest of the Bible is nothing less than the history of God moving to restore what we lost in the fall. And in the tabernacle, what we have is a major step in God's work of reversing the most devastating effect of our fall into sin, which is separation from God himself. 
See, this is the punishment that 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says will be experienced by everyone who is not in union with Jesus Christ, God's Son. If you are not in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal reward will be to be cut off from the presence of the Lord and to be destroyed eternally. They will suffer separation from the presence of God and the punishment of eternal destruction. That is the most devastating effect of our fallen sin. And the history of the Bible is the way in which God has gone about reversing that damage that was caused by our sin. So in the tabernacle, God was restoring what had been lost in the fall. And in the tabernacle, God made himself available to be sought by his covenant people. You need to follow me here. Are you with me? Not only did God establish the tabernacle to be a place where he would dwell among his people, he also established the tabernacle to be a place where his people would come to meet with him. So you see this, this double, uh, you see both sides moving towards one another and meeting here together in this place called the tabernacle. Listen to Exodus 33 verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent, there's Skene, and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. Not only had God restored a dwelling place for his special presence among his people, but his people had a place to go in order to meet with God. And you've got to get this if you're going to understand what I'm going to connect it to in the gospel. God not only established a dwelling place for him in this world again post-fall, but he also established a place where we could draw near to him in the tabernacle. He positioned himself, in other words, in such a way that sinful man could now seek him and find him and draw near to him. What a stark contrast to the way that we were left when he drove us out of the Garden of Eden. At the entrance of that gate, there, was a, there were cherubim placed there with a flaming sword, ready to execute the fullness of divine justice upon any human being that would dare approach God in their sin. They could not come to him anymore. They could not enter into his sanctuary. They could not dwell with him. That's the demands of his holiness. His eyes are too pure to behold evil. No sin dwells with him. And yet here in the tabernacle, we have God positioning in in unbelievable grace, we have God positioning Himself among sinful men, entering into the darkness of our world and making Himself available to us. It's an amazing statement of God's willingness to reconcile with sinners like us. His desire and His purpose to do so. Just amazing. Now coming back to John, Most commentators agree, and those that don't, I find them a little quacky anyway, but most commentators agree that John is purposefully using this specific word in John 1.14 in order to draw a parallel between God's dwelling place among Israel in the tabernacle and God's dwelling place among us in Christ. We know from the history of Israel in the Old Testament that the tabernacle was only meant to be a temporary dwelling place for God among his people. We see this in two ways, really. Number one, as we see in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 11, the tabernacle was eventually replaced by the temple. Right? So here in this description of the dedication of Solomon's temple, we have the glory of the Lord filling the house of the Lord. What's that in reference to? It's in reference to the temple. Now, that's the same language at the end of Exodus 40, at the dedication of the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was done, Moses had completed all the instructions of the Lord, and the people had built it according to the pattern of Yahweh. Then the glory of the Lord came into the tabernacle and filled the place, so much so that Moses himself could not stand in the tabernacle to minister unto the Lord. Now, here we have that same language being applied to the temple. 
signifying that God's dwelling place among his people was no longer this, this transitory, this temporary, this incomplete tabernacle that was with them through the wilderness wanderings. Now his residence has been taken up in a more permanent structure. Now they have come into the promised land. They are dwelling with God in a stationary location. There's no more sojourning around the wilderness, so they don't need the tabernacle anymore. And so God himself takes up a more permanent residence among them. In that way, we see that the tabernacle was not the perfect and the complete picture of God's will of reuniting with man. But then secondly, even the temple was not a permanent dwelling place for God. Because as Ezekiel 10 verse 18 says, eventually, because of the sin and the rebellion of the people of Israel, they broke his covenant. Therefore, eventually, the presence of God departed from the temple. The glory of the Lord departed. See, the tabernacle and the temple were nothing more than shadows and types of what God was ultimately going to accomplish in this world through his son. This is why it's so significant in John 1.14 that the Holy Spirit takes a form of this very word from the Septuagint, so often used in reference to the tabernacle, and applies it to the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. It is preparing, really what this is doing is preparing us to understand one of the major themes of the Gospel of John, which is that everything related to God's dwelling place among Israel under the Old Covenant has now been superseded by God's dwelling place among us in Christ. That the temple is done. All the temporary shadows that were pictured in the temple have met their fulfillment and their completion in the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. This is the whole message of Hebrews, right? To the Christians who have come to Christ, those who have acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, as the one place of reconciliation between God and men. The whole book of Hebrews is about the reality that if you abandon Christ in order to go back to the temple, you are going back to nothing. Because the fulfillment of the temple and everything in the Old Testament has been brought to completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you abandon him, you have nothing to run to. That is one of the major themes of the Gospel of John. And we're going to see that very clearly when we get to John chapter 2. Where Jesus, standing at the temple, says to the Pharisees, Look, you destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up again. And then the interpretation there is given by John himself. He wasn't talking about this brick and mortar stone temple in front of him. He was talking about the temple of his body. Signifying that right now, everything that was pictured under the old covenant temple has met its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Oh man, I love that. I love that reality. Get to that in a minute. All that was pictured in the Old Testament was only temporary and an imperfect picture of what God was ultimately going to do through the incarnation of the Son. And now that the Son has come, you need, to, you need to get this, because there's a theology running around today that says the temple's not done. We can disagree on that issue, but I want you to know where I stand. And I mean by that the Old Covenant temple. Now that the Son, who is the fulfillment of what was pictured in the tabernacle, the fulfillment of what was pictured in the temple, now that the Son has come, the pictures have given way to the substance. The shadows have disappeared, and, and their permanent and eternal fulfillment has come in its place. In the incarnation of God, the Son, when the Word of God became flesh. And my point there is that God's not going to be going backwards in His redemptive plan by reconstituting an old covenant-like temple where He will meet with His people. It's not going to happen. The fulfillment of that is found in Jesus Christ. And that temple, beloved, that temple is coming. That temple will be planted here on this earth. 
the dwelling place of God with man will meet this world and will renew it fully and completely. In Revelation 21.3, at that point, we will dwell with our God and God's dwelling place will be perfectly and eternally among us on the earth. It's a glory there that I really don't want you to miss. If you have questions about that, I'm more than happy to talk about it. If we disagree on that, neither one of us are going to hell. Okay, I don't believe that. But I just want you to know where I'm at. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the tabernacle. Now, I know that, as I mentioned earlier, we have reached a crawling pace through this verse. But for the rest of our time today, I just want to look at a couple of points of application. By way of application, what are we supposed to take away from this truth that in Jesus Christ, God dwelt among us? He tabernacled among us. Well, there are two things that come to mind. I'm sure there are more. Someone out there could probably give me more. But two things that come to mind. Number one, there is only one place where man can dwell with God now. And that is where God has chosen to dwell with man. There's only one place where man can dwell with God, and that is where God has chosen to dwell with man. In the old covenant, God chose to dwell among his covenant people in the tabernacle and in the temple. And if you remember, We've just looked at it recently in our Sunday school series, walking through the Old Testament, looking at these major themes of the Bible, God's kingship. We've even seen there that God chose a specific location in the promised land where that temple would be. He chose that his name would dwell in Jerusalem, right? In the Old Covenant, God chose to dwell among his covenant people in the tabernacle, And then in 1 Kings 9.3, we see the same principle applied to the temple, where God says, my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually, and that any time a person prayed to God there at the temple or sought him there, God promised that he would pay attention. He would take notice. And so in Exodus 33.7, as we saw, how did the people respond to that promise? How did they respond to the reality, both in the tabernacle and the temple? Well, those who, under the old covenant, who wanted to draw near to God, had to draw near to him at that tabernacle, at the temple. Now, the glory of the new covenant, though, has surpassed the glory of the old. Because now, God is not dwelling with us in some building far off in the lands of Israel. Nor is he... Uh, Nor is it his purpose, as I mentioned earlier, to revert back to the shadow, which has already given way to the substance. This is what Jesus says in John 4.21. He's going to make it very clear there when he's speaking with the woman at the well, that it's neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem that you're going to worship the Father anymore. God's not about the geographical location where you're worshiping him anymore because a time is coming and is now, and, 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 and now is, he says, when, the, when true worshipers of the Father are going to worship Him in spirit and in truth, no longer fixated on the types and the shadows and the temporary elements of old covenant worship, but now caught up in the reality and the fullness of new covenant worship. The fullness of the Spirit being transformed from one degree of glory to another, beholding in the face of Christ the glory of God shining through. That's not limited to some location. That's not limited to some specific building. That's why I don't like whenever people describe this building as the church. It's not the church. It might be a dwelling for the church, but the church is the people. And that's where God has chosen to dwell among us, among the people, right? The old covenant has given way to the glory of the new covenant. God has taken up permanent residence with humanity in the man, Jesus Christ. And he mediates that presence among us. Now that Christ has returned to glory, he mediates that presence among us by his spirit and through his people. Really important to understand that in relation to the the need to be present and to be actively engaged in the corporate worship of the body. 
When we gather here together, we are not merely gathering with one another. We are gathering together with God. The church is the temple of the Spirit of God. We are the ones being built together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 21. God has made his eternal tabernacle in Jesus Christ, and he mediates that with us by his Spirit. Now the question, if that's true, then how then do we draw near to God? In the Old Covenant, they drew near to God by going to the tabernacle, going to the temple, or praying towards the temple. Well, in Hebrews 7.25, we find that the manner in which we're going to draw near to God is by drawing near to him in his new covenant temple, drawing near to him through his son. If the promise that God would notice everyone who drew near to him in the old covenant is true, how much more true is it that he will pay attention and welcome and receive everyone who draws near to him through his son? Application point there. You will never find God if you will not draw near to him in the place where he has caused his name to dwell. You must come to Jesus Christ, God's son, if you would draw near to him and find the father. See, in Christ, God has made his dwelling among man, but... Only in Christ, or maybe I should say, and only in Christ, because this is not a contrast. In Christ, God has made his dwelling among men, and in Christ, you will find your dwelling place with God. Do you understand that? In Christ, not only has God made his dwelling place among us, but in Christ, you will find your dwelling place with God. That leads me to my second point of application. The incarnation of God the Son demonstrates God's resolve or his willingness to dwell with us. The incarnation of God the Son demonstrates or proves God's resolve and his willingness to dwell with us. This little phrase in John 1.14, he dwelt among us, contains so much hope and glory for sinners in this world. This contains so much hope for you, believer. If you truly understand what it's saying, if you will latch onto it by faith and you will live in the reality of its light, you will find tremendous blessing with the Lord. See, whether we recognize it or not, the longing in every single human being's heart is the nearness of God. Every single person on the planet longs for the nearness of God, whether they recognize that or not. To experience and to be satisfied with God drawing near to them as his image bearers, that's what we were created for. It's stamped upon our nature. We were designed to be satisfied and fulfilled by nothing other than God drawing near to us. Like Augustine said in his confessions, our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. That is the, that's the state of humanity. Now, most sinners in the world don't recognize this because they're still lost and trapped in darkness. They can't comprehend the light of the word that is shining upon them, making known to them where the answer for all of their longings is found. Yes, their souls are restless, but they can't comprehend the fact that the only rest that can be found for them is in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't comprehend the light of the word shining upon them, beckoning them to come, to draw near to God through him. But in spite of that fact, we need to recognize every pursuit of sin proves that this is what the sinner is seeking after. 
We are looking for that high, that eternal high. We are looking for that joy, that eternal joy. We are looking for that satisfying excitement and that sense of real purpose and meaning and the satisfaction that we were made to experience in God. And yet in all of our efforts to slake that craving and to satisfy it with the things of the world, all we come to find is the bitterness and emptiness of realizing that we cannot find what we're looking for in anything that is in this world. We find a moment of fleeting pleasure in sin, that is true. But we must never forget that it's only a moment that we find in that sin. We run after sin, but we never find that sin to truly or fully satisfy the deep longing that is planted within us. You guys know what Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And nothing less than something that is eternal can satisfy what God has planted within us. We find moments of fleeting pleasure when we run to drunkenness, when we run to drugs and pornography, when we run headlong into sexual deviancy, when we give ourselves over to entertainment and amusement. That is just as sinful, I hope you know, as running out and getting drunk. It's dissipation. You are, you are allowing your mind to be handed over to numbing, the numbing effects of entertainment. I'm not saying you can't watch a movie. I'm not saying you can't watch football or baseball every now and then. But I'm saying if you give yourself to that, you're sinning just as much as anyone else. We find temporary amuse, or, uh, pleasure in entertainment and amusement and the various activities that we fill our lives with. We find it in money and in fame and in power and in marriage and in singleness, in children, and then now in not having children, even if it means that we murder them. Right. We will seek our pleasure. We seek after more lands and better homes and bigger barns and more success. There is no end to the idolatry of the sinful heart. And yet, after we've run all of our pursuits and chased after everything on a, on a firm course, we never find that a single one of those things will truly satisfy our souls. Why is that? Well, it's as I said earlier, because God has put eternity in the hearts of men. We spend all of our energy and time and efforts trying to chase something down in the things of the world that ultimately cannot be found in the world, but is ultimately found in God. This is the tragedy of the human race. We cut ourselves off from the very thing that would cause us to live. We commit spiritual suicide. Probably what's most tragic about that is that it doesn't have to be that way. The incarnation of the Son of God. God descending to this world and dwelling among us in our darkness is proof positive that he's willing to have any and all who will draw near to him. In Jesus Christ, God not only stands before us, beloved, he offers himself to us. He offers himself as a fountain of living water calling us to turn away from our broken cisterns and to turn from our misery and sin and to come to him and experience the true blessing of life. As he said, at the woman, said to the woman at the well, he offers to us water that truly satisfies, that's in contradiction to the waters of this world. To the Jews in John 6, he told them, don't labor for the food that perishes, labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. We have no right to doubt his willingness to give us what is ultimately satisfying. We only have but to seek it at his hand. John 7, 38, he says the same thing, crying out. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit. Are you longing? Are you craving for more of God? Are you craving for the nearness of God and the blessing of his fullness? the light of his countenance shining upon you, you have no doubt, you have no reason to doubt his willingness to give it to you. You have but to get up off your rear end and go seek it in the face of Christ. 
So often we attribute our own laziness and apathy to the sovereignty of God. Say, I'm not satisfied in God. God hasn't given me what I'm longing for. He's failed me. He's not failed you. He has not failed you. And He has not withdrawn His hand from you. In Jesus Christ, He freely extends it. He is preaching to us through the message of the Gospel, the words of Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to Me. Come and drink water without price and without cost. Come, learn from Me and be satisfied with My delights. In Jesus Christ, God is calling to each one of us, calling us out from these broken cisterns of the world and these ways in which we are spending our money on things that do not satisfy. He's calling us to that which will truly satisfy if we will only get up and chase Him down to have it. Everyone who will, Jesus says, everyone who will come to Me, I will in no wise cast Him out. He even told us, he promised in John 14, 23, whoever loves me and whoever keeps my commandments, he will be loved by my Father and we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you long for more of him? Do you long for his nearness? John didn't write this gospel so that we would merely be presented with the facts of what happened in the life of Jesus. You understand that? John wrote this gospel to be intensely personal. Remember John 20, 31. He is writing everything in this book in order to win you over to Christ. John wants you not only to see in word pictures the glory that he saw, he wants you to see through those words the glory of Jesus Christ for yourself. And Jesus says that glory will be revealed to everyone who loves me and pursues me diligently in the path of obedience. We will come to that one and we will make our abode with him. We will abide with that one. The incarnation is God's open and public declaration that he is willing to dwell among us. And that in Christ, he has taken away every obstacle that stands in the way of sinners like us dwelling with him. We in faith, or will we in faith, grab a hold of that truth and draw near to God to have it? That's the question that remains for us this morning. James chapter 4, verse 8, the promise stands. Those who draw near to God, he will draw near to them. Will you do that? Looking to Jesus and believing in God's good word spoken to you through him, saying to you, I have come to dwell in your midst. Will you believe that word? Will you believe God's promise? And will you draw near to God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Will you go meet God at his temple? My friend, don't ever be afraid to take God at his word and to act upon it. None of those who trust in the Lord will ever be disappointed or put to shame. In Jesus Christ, God came to dwell among us. And through his death on our behalf, through his resurrection, through his ascension to the presence of God's God and glory, he beckons us to draw near to him in Christ in order to have all that Christ himself has. The fattened calf has been sacrificed. All the preparations have been made. The only thing left for us is the question, who will come to the wedding feast and eat with the Father? through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God came to dwell among us. One question that this text leaves us with, or we're going to be left with today, is how do we know that in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, how do we know that God himself was in fact tabern tabernacling among us? 
John's answer is simple. We know this because, he says, of what we saw in him. The word became flesh, he dwelt among us, and we know that this was true. We know that this truly was God among us because we beheld his glory. And we're going to pick up right there next week. Would you pray with me? Father, it is truly a glorious thing to behold you drawing near to sinners, not merely in the tabernacle, with all its rules and regulations for how sinners can approach you, but drawing near to us now in the fullness of time through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come as our great mediator, the mediator between God and men. And Lord, I pray that as we draw near to you as our mediator, you would mediate the fullness of all that is yours with the Father into our hearts and souls and satisfy us with your loving kindness and your steadfast love. Help us sing of your steadfast love in the morning. Help us in the night watches anticipate them as opportunities to praise you on our beds. And may every moment in between be sanctified by the joy of your light and your countenance. And may we know your presence as the God who walks among us, the one who is our God. Father, we pray and we ask for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our service, would you hear the words of 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's the reality, that's the promise, that's the hope. Turn our eyes to Christ and we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. May you go forth this week and find the blessing of that reality in your own pursuit of the Lord. And I look forward to the next time that we get to gather here as his people together. Amen. May you go in peace. Yeah.